0: Welcome to Dental Dilemmas, brought to you by the ADA Council on Ethics, Bylaws, and Judicial Affairs, and I am your host, Alex Melian. Today, we continue a series of episodes that were recorded live at the ADA's annual SmileCon meeting in Houston, Texas. Using the ADA's Code of Ethics and Professional Conduct, we will analyze two of the Council's most popular ethical moments. The first ethical question was posed by Dr. Bob Wilson, and then second by the entire Ethics Subcommittee of SEBJA. Both of these topics are previously published articles. Join me as we listen to this special episode recorded in front of a live audience, and I'm honored to co-host with a special guest, Dr. Ansley Depp. We have a special format today in that we are analyzing two questions as they both relate to animals accompanying patients into the office. The first question is, a patient recently came into my office for treatment accompanied by a dog in a harness and vest that identified the animal as a service dog. None of the team members previously encountered a patient coming into an appointment with an animal escort. In these situations, should the animal be allowed in the office? Should it be kept in the waiting room or allowed in the operatory? What are the ethical considerations? The second question we will look at today is, One of my patients, who is often anxious about dental procedures, arrived at my office with a dog. She informed the front office staff members that the dog is an emotional support animal to help her reduce anxiety in certain situations. One of my staff members is highly allergic to dogs and was reluctant to bring the patient back to the operatory. What are my ethical responsibilities to my patient, other patients in the office and my staff members? Today, we are broadcasting live from SmileCon on stage And here today with us are some of my favorite SEBJA people. So my guest host and CE subcommittee chair, Dr. Ansley Depp.
1: Excited to be here, Alex. Um, I wanted to offer congratulations on your great job as host of this podcast. What started as a great idea from our chair of SEBJA, Meredith Bailey, earlier this year has turned into a stellar podcast. And you stepping in as host was a huge part of our success. So thank you.
0: Thank you for those kind words. Um, today with us, we have Dr. Bob Wilson, uh, past chair of SEBJA, Dr. Lindsey Compton, a previous new dentist committee member on SEBJA for two terms, and Dr. Meredith Bailey, um, current chair of SEBJA. So if, uh, if each of you could just take a, a few minutes and tell us a little bit about yourselves, uh, where you practice, your involvement in organized dentistry, and um, how you ended up on SEBJA.
2: Thank you. It's, it's First of all, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really delighted to be back with my um, council, my former counsel and excited to be a part of this today. So thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm Bob Wilson I'm from Gaithersburg, Maryland. I'm a general practice dentist for 37 years now I'm currently in a partnership with my daughter Rachel who graduated in 2018 and uh, loving what I do more than ever
3: Uh Lindsay Compton. I practice in Arvada, Colorado, which would be a suburb of Denver and previous a member and I was had the honor to do that because I was on the new dentist committee, uh, so able to serve for two years and don't want to give anything away but proud to have my dogs in the office that helped me.
4: And I'm Meredith Bailey from Boston, Massachusetts. I am currently an associate in private practice in Medfield, Massachusetts, and I'm also faculty at Boston University Henry M. Goldman School of Dental Medicine, the current chair of Steve Jett, And I am so thrilled to be here, actually participating in the podcast that we really took from a idea at the very beginning of the year to a reality. So thank you so much. I'm looking forward to this episode.
0: I know we've been looking forward to this as a group and it's great to be here. So today we're talking about two ethical moment articles previously published in JADA regarding service animals and emotional support animals. Uh, Dr. Wilson will be covering um, some of the questions on service animals and Dr. Bailey and Dr. Compton will be speaking more so on emotional support animals uh, as we go along. Uh, uh, Emotional support animals have been in the news um, a lot the last few years. I know there's been different things, news stories that you've seen and whatnot. So I think there's more awareness than there maybe was a decade ago. Um, but if you could tell us a little bit about what is the difference between a service animal and an
2: emotional support animal? Certainly. Um, let me start by saying that when you look at this topic, you've got to be very aware of the Americans with Disability Act put out by the Department of Justice because the law is very specific and it's, it's really important to keep the law in mind. The law and the ethics line up very nicely on this issue, though, so there's a lot of overlap. Um, so a service animal is an animal that has been trained to do a specific task for a person with a disability. distinguishing factor that you'll notice is they're always going to be in a harness or, or they're beyond a leash, um, and a very important difference that I alluded to a moment ago is they have legal protection to access to most of the places that the public in general has access to. And then what could be some reasons
0: for a patient to use a service animal versus an emotional support animal?
2: A service animal, as I said, it performs a specific task. So probably the most common and well-known example is the leader dog for visually impaired. Um, another example is a brace animal for those that um, are prone to fall. Um, and then there's also uh, service animals that are trained to do various tasks for people with post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, For instance, if somebody has a fear of going into a building from a a traumatic experience, the dog will go in, check everything out, and come back out and let the handler know that it's safe to enter.
4: And then the difference between a service animal and an emotional support animal, as Dr. Wilson says, the key distinction is that service animals are protected by federal law, whereas emotional service animals aren't. And emotional support animals are defined as animals that provide companionship and emotional support for people diagnosed with a psychological disorder. And these uh, animals may include dogs, pigs, or birds, and their presence in a range of settings from airplanes to medical offices is increasing.
0: Do you know if if there's any specific training or certification for emotional support animals?
3: I know in uh, Colorado, one of the popular certification uh, companies is called Pet Partners. And I've actually had my dog certified through Pet Partners. Um, They do have to go through a question. You know, we have to have a questionnaire. We have to have all their shots and everything updated. They also have an on-site test where they have to perform certain functions in front of an officer uh, in order to be certified.
0: Thank you.
1: While we're talking about the emotional support animals, do either of you have a policy in your office regarding the emotional support animals?
3: I definitely do. Uh, From very early on in my office, um, I've had my dog, initially it was just one dog, Uh, her name is Lola, she's a Labradoodle, she comes in the office. It was started out to be as a request from my staff because they always enjoyed hearing stories about Lola, Uh, and then eventually I would kind of bring her in, which I felt was like sneaking her in, and then once the staff loved it so much and then the patients loved it so much, I thought, well, hey, maybe I should get her certified because she really did have a great disposition, and that's kind of how it started. Um, But then there's also the patient-facing policy side to it. You know, if I'm going to decide to do this, what do I need to do? Um, So in all the patient reminder phone calls ahead of time, patients were let, you know, they were um, asked, you know, is it okay if there's a dog in the office when you have your visit? And I made sure very much at the beginning that you have to have a verbal yes. We can't just leave a message. We can't just send a text. It has to be a verbal confirmation because, you know, everybody's very busy. Did you actually get the message? Do you actually understand what we mean? And so I was pretty um, insistent about that. Uh, It also is a question when people first walk in the office as well. Uh, My front desk lady always says, there are dogs here today. Are you okay with dogs? And then... I'll tell you, it's always
1: yes. Bob, do you have a policy in your office?
2: I do not actually have a written policy in my office, but perhaps I should.
1: I want to talk about your article, Bob, um, and you specifically addressed service animals. So justice comes up in one of the articles where you need to be fair to all patients So, what if a patient has a severe allergy, or is afraid of a support animal, or maybe your staff?
2: Um, I would say think social distancing on steroids. So, you want to do some creative things with scheduling um, to try to, you know, keep that apart. Of course, the first thing you got to do is identify that, and um, you know, it's something that um, you should probably have on your intake. Health history question about allergies, you should ask about that. If you know you're going to have service animals or emotional support animals in your office, be sure you ask about allergies to pet dander. Um, if that's the case, then you need to try to separate those both um, temporally on the schedule and physically in the office as best as you can. And that way you're going to provide justice to all in that situation.
1: So what prompted you to write your article on service animals?
2: Um, In a word, it's Bob Woodruff. Now, let me explain. So there's a program called Wounded Warrior Canine Connection that provides service animals. And those service animals are always named for wounded or killed in action. And you might remember Bob, Bob Woodruff was a journalist who had a severe injury in Iraq when he was covering the war over there. My brother-in-law suffers from MS, and he's he's prone to falls. So um, this training facility happens to be very close to where we live back in Maryland, and he was able to get a service dog. His dog is Bob Woodruff, and um, this dog is an absolutely amazing animal. And just watching what this dog does and how well it's behaved, um, and of course. You know, my brother, Tom, also is a patient of mine, so, um, and he wanted to know, could he bring his animal? I said, absolutely, Um, bring the animal. Now, right at the same time, uh, Siebje was asked to look at 4A in our Principles of Ethics and code of Professional Conduct and add to that list of um, disallowed discriminators on patient selection, disabilities. So all this was going on at the same time, so it seemed like um, it was a good topic for me to write on
1: well, that's awesome and the article you discuss that there are some specific requirements and identification required for a service animal could you discuss that and also maybe how you can ask
2: certainly I'd be happy to um, so a service animal should be harnessed or leashed um, and there's really, believe it or not, there is no um, training requirement that's listed by the Department of Justice in the Americans with Disability Act. Um, you can train your service dog yourself, and you do not have to have identification for the animal. Now, having said that, most of the programs out there um, follow standards set by Assistance Animals International and those animals will be identified. They will have a harness, and for instance, Bob, it says Wounded Warrior Canine Connection on the harness, and it's got a little ID card, and Tom's had cards printed out, and he'll give them out to people because, as you can imagine, it, wherever Tom goes, it's like when you have a baby. Nobody cares about Tom. All they want to do is know about the dog, so he has little cards with, with Bob's picture on it, and uh, that is typically what you'll find, but it's not a legal requirement.
1: Is there a certain way to ask whether a dog yes. or a pet is a service animal?
2: There's two things you can ask, according to the Americans with Disabilities Act. You can ask, is that a service animal? And you can ask, what task does it perform? You're, you're not allowed, to, though, to ask for identification.
1: Are there any circumstances that would maybe allow exclusion of a service animal in the dental office?
2: There are. Um, And here again, the ethics, particularly under the principle of justice and the law, line up very well. So if the animal is out of control, um, it's being aggressive, barking, and the handler does not take appropriate corrective action. Or if the dog toilets improperly in the office, then the animal can be excluded. Legally and I think ethically. Now, having said that, bona fide service animal—they are trained so well. They will not engage other humans, other animals, um, and and they test them and they have recurrent testing. And one of the things they'll do—they'll bring in um, a dog that's going to bark at them and and be aggressive, and they won't even look at that animal. They will they will be completely passive. So. The, the situations that are permitted under exclusion, you're just not going to find um, with a bona fide, well-trained service animal.
0: And switching back to emotional support animals a little bit, Lindsay, could you talk on Lola in your office? Do you have any kind of special circumstances or individual training that you've done?
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, So thinking of special circumstances and what Bob was talking about, if any of my patients have an animal that they bring with them, then automatically they default and they bring their animal in. It is a priority for them to be more comfortable and for them to be safe than for me to have my animals in. So kind of speaking of policy and, you know, what's involved, um, because a lot of my patients You know, the reason why they have it is a seizure disorder or it's a a child with um, diabetes. It's it's any of those reasons and those are definitely paramount to what I have. Um, And then as far as training, there is certain things that I've done above and beyond to give them training in the dental office setting. So they know that there's little bells on the door and they know that they go greet people. They're not allowed to jump, but they sit there and wait. Right. So then they wait to be petted, they wait to be received, they don't you know, go to the person. When people come back to the operatory, they know that when the chair lays back, they exit the room. And so they know, and when people will still try to engage them when they lay back, they will not, um, unless I call the dog in. Um, and then they know that when the chair sits up, they're welcome to come into the room. So there's absolutely no jumping on the chair. People have asked and the dogs just look at me and I'm like, no, you know better. <laughs> and so there's, there's just certain things that they know that they definitely cannot do um, that we've done above and beyond. Uh, the practice setting they have is also a little different than maybe what you could possibly think. Most dental offices are in a suite in a medical office building. My practice is actually an old house that was built in the 40s that we've converted into a dental office. So it has a fenced-in backyard. It has an area, so the dogs aren't just you know trapped in a suite all day long. They're allowed to go outside, and um, we've even had parents bring their kids, and then you know Lola and Winnie go outside and play with the kids while the parents are having their dental office visit. So it's been a really great practice builder because you know we've kind of thought about it all along the way.
0: Oh, great. Thanks for that background, I, my team. Every time we have a st- uh, team meeting or staff meeting the last few years, they ask if they can, if they can have an emotional support animal, so those are <laughs> definitely good things to consider, so that background helps quite a bit. Yeah. Meredith and Lindsay, uh, you're both part of the ethics subcommittee that wrote the article on emotional support animals that we're talking about, and we talk about these ethical moment articles uh, frequently on this podcast, but could you talk about the process of writing an article and just what your experience was of, of writing an article?
4: So our article actually came as a spinoff of Dr. Wilson's article because there were so many questions that came up while he was writing his. And so, you know, some of the questions that we thought about were just what you've asked. What happens if you have an anxious patient that brings in a dog, but your staff is allergic? Or um, what happens if other patients are afraid of the of the dogs. And so as we spoke about, you know, it's really important that the office create a policy and, and the key word is balance, that you're really kind of balancing the practice setting, the needs of patients, the needs of staff, uh, and the dentist should be empowered to make that determination. But just as an aside, this was a really fun article to write because we wrote it with the ethics subcommittee. So there were a lot of people involved. And if we can recall back to the days before Zoom, we actually wrote this with phone calls so we, we split up the work in different topics and we had many phone calls going back and forth and it was really interesting to hear the opinions from council members across the country who practice in various practice settings.
3: Yeah, just to echo what Meredith said, as a subcommittee, it's just such a great environment that we all really chipped in, um, very conversational, um, just everybody gave their input, and because you know, we all come from different practice settings, we were able to add a lot to it.
4: Wonderful.
0: And Meredith, could you talk a little bit more in regards to the Ethical Woman article, um, what specific ethical principles are considered um, in each article?
4: Sure, and we actually hit them all, which is amazing. So we'll start off with patient autonomy, which is self-governance. So if you can't accommodate, you need to refer to an office that accepts animals. So if you're unable to have the patient bring in their service animal, you need to refer them to someone who will let them. The patient does have the right to decide how to receive treatment. The second principle is non-maleficence, which is do no harm. As uh, Dr. Compton alluded to, you need to make sure that the animal is controlled while you're performing your treatment and won't jump at the sound of the drill. You have to balance the stress for your patients who can't have their comfort animal versus the stress for patients and staff who have allergies or fears. The third principle is beneficence, which is do good. The most important aspect of this obligation is the component and timely delivery of dental care within the bounds of clinical circumstances presented by the patient, and both of you have alluded to that as well, because you have to have due consideration to the needs, desires, and values of the patient, and you should be able to treat the patient to the best of your ability, regardless of the animal's presence. As Dr. Wilson spoke about justice, which is fairness, so you have to be fair to all in the office, balancing your staff, your patient, and then other patients who are in the office as well, And the last principle is veracity, which is truthfulness. And we've alluded to that, that there must be a clear policy that is written and communicated to everyone.
0: And um, Meredith, you kind of hit it on the head. There's lots of questions that come up and I know the reasons for writing this article. So getting back to a question or two, what do you do if patients or staff members or team members have allergies to service or emotional support animals? How How would somebody handle that situation?
3: Sure. I've actually had that in my office and that just comes up number one in their medical history gathering, but also when we do that verbal confirmation. Um, and now I also just know exactly which patients, you know, are allergic and, um, Typically, Lola and Winnie come in on Wednesdays, and so we just know that, okay, Annette gets scheduled on Thursday because she's allergic to dogs, or she comes in on Monday because the cleaning crew comes in over the weekend and will clean out any possible pet dander that's been in there. So it, there is some, you know, you, it's not just done on the fly. There is a lot of thinking and planning that's done for that.
1: So my mother had a therapy dog, so I have a little bit of experience with this. And it was amazing, you know, the training. Um, this dog would come with her to work every Thursday. And then in the afternoon, they went to Children's Hospital. And she could put them in the bed. Those children could pull on her hair, anything. And she would not not bite nothing. It was amazing. That's probably been my only experience with uh service animal therapy kind of dogs, but have any of you all had an experience with a service animal in your office? And I wonder, Lindsay, do you get other service animals or emotional support animals because you're so, you know, open about it?
3: Uh, yeah, in multiple ways, actually. So it almost, sometimes my service animals become everybody's service animal. So, um, we'll have a new patient in the office and then a couple weeks later we'll be like, oh, my husband was in the office and he said, you have dogs. Where are the dogs? <laughs> so then I'm like, oh, you need an emotional support animal to come to the dentist. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, so we find that that works, um, it's, you know, a practice builder, but then also a patient builder. I think it kind of helps people get over a little anxiety. If you know you can go to the dental office and pet a fluffy animal, um, that helps out a lot. Um, We do have patients that request to bring in their dogs so they know or they've seen that I have my dogs in the office and they say, hey, I always bring my dogs to medical appointments with me. Can I bring my animal in the office? Then I kind of also have to, you know, enact my policy to them. So I say, okay, well, what kind of animal is it? You know, have you had it trained? And So then if they're going to bring their animal into my office, I have to treat it just like I treat my dogs, right? So, and then I just have to ask, you know, because they've asked me for permission to come in, I just have to follow up. I can't ever guarantee that there isn't going to be somebody else in the office that has an allergy, a fear, anything else. So I always really appreciate it when patients clear it with me first because I think people really care about the safety of their own animal as well because it, you know, it's a symbiotic relationship. Um, so it's a really kind space that everybody works in.
1: That's awesome to hear. Bob, I know you've had uh, experience with um, Bob Woodruff any other animals? Has this opened a door to anything else?
2: Yes, it has. Um, <clears throat> I had a couple leader dogs for, for visually impaired, uh, but I also have another patient who is a trainer for Wounded Warrior Canine Connection. So she gets the dogs when they're pups and and does and the dogs stay with her until they reach, um, I think about 18 months. And then they go off to the facility up in Boyds, Maryland. So she's asked if she can bring her dogs in and I, I allow her, um, you know, dental office is a unique place and there's a lot of different noises and things like that. So um, she'll bring dogs in from about the time they're about eight months up to that 18th month mark, just to start to kind of get them used to, um, to that environment and, and, uh, and experiences things that they don't experience in their routine training program.
1: So what is the key takeaway from each of your articles? I guess, Bob, you can speak first on yours.
2: Sure. Um, The key takeaway is that service animals are extraordinarily well-trained. And in my experience, they are never any more burden in the office in, in any way, cleaning, management, anything else than the best of my patients, and certainly less of a burden than some other patients are. Um, They're always well received, they're always well behaved. Um, The other patients in the office have always reacted very favorably to them. I've never once had anybody say, oh my gosh, I'm afraid of the dog, Um, asked to be separated. So it's, it's always been a very positive experience.
4: As dentists, our goal really is to provide the best care to our patients with the most positive experience for them. So as we talked about with the emotional support animals, creating a clear office policy and communicating it to everyone is important, considering balance between your patients and your staff members, um, and to make sure that we are able to, to fulfill our mission of really
1: helping our patients achieve optimal health. So let's change our subject just a little Um, Let's talk a little bit about SEBJA. So for those who are listening who maybe don't know what SEBJA is, it is a council of the ADA and it stands for Council on um, Ethics, Bylaws, and Judicial Affairs. So we all have served on this council or are serving. So what interested you in serving on SEBJA? Let's talk with Lindsay first and especially, um, specifically on being involved in ethics and dentistry.
3: Oh, wonderful. Uh, So when I got on the new dentist committee, there was a couple of different options of councils that I could serve on. And CEDRA really spoke to me because I felt like it would get into, you know, what is behind the ADA? You know, like, what is, you know, what are the rules? How do we run this? You know, why are we here? And I really wanted to know the background. And so that's why it really um, initially interested me. But then the more I read it, the more it was like, oh, these people, they really like think about, you know, the policies and how this affects people and, you know, who, you know, who's all around. And it just, and it was just also such a good group of people. And it's, it, it just was such a great environment that I had
2: an amazing experience.
1: We have two chairs here. So I would love to hear their responses to this question. Bob? Bob?
2: Let me start by saying that I really, really love our profession, and I'm very proud of it. And I've always been very um, devoted to trying to do whatever I can to help maintain the esteem of our profession. Um, And the thing that sets us apart from a trade is our principles of ethics and code of professional conduct. I'm also a little bit of a word cruncher. And I like, you know, looking at the bylaws or maybe I think I think maybe I have a knack for it. In fact, I've even been described as a bit of a nerd that way. (laughs) Um, Oh, my goodness. So that combination of those two things was really, I thought, um, would fit my interest and hopefully my skill set well. And that's what attracted me to, um, you know, ask to be nominated and placed on this council.
1: Meredith?
4: I, I agree with Bob. I, mean, I think that was very well said about protecting our profession, and the core of our profession really is our ethical principles. But I uh, also think that one of the most important benefits of organized dentistry is the personal connection. And so I will say the people drew, drew me to SIPJA. Uh Through my encounters at the local level and at the state level, I was fortunate to have mentors with Dr. Judy Fish, who is also a SEBJA member and our current trustee, Dr. Richard Rosado, who is also a, a chief to chair, chair, um, as well as Dr. Uh, Bob Faella, who's past president of the ADA. So they also encouraged me to apply for the position and I was in, very excited when I was accepted and I had no idea what I was getting into and this council is even better than what I had thought, just like Alex had no idea what he was getting into when he agreed <laughs> to host this. Uh, and, and the people that I've had the opportunity to work with, um, and our staff, who's amazing. Um, it's just it's been a real a real
1: reward. Speaking of takeaways, do either of you have a favorite memory um, from being on the council that you would like to share?
2: Absolutely, um, I have lots of wonderful memories, and um, I, I have to to pair what Meredith just said because the. The people that I've met, the friends I've made, uh, the interactions with the other council members have just been an amazing reward. The staff support has been spectacular. I don't know any other word to say it, and that probably doesn't do it justice. Um, And we've had a lot of fun, a lot of great dinners, a lot of great times, a lot of good work. But my single favorite memory, if I had to pick one, I'm probably gonna pick my first visit to Wrigley Field to see a Cubs game with the entire council.
1: <laughs> um, who won that game exactly? Do we remember? Was it the Cubs or could it have been the Cincinnati Reds?
2: <laughs> we were all winners that day.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> what about Meredith or Lindsay? Oh, I um can I have like three
3: favorite moments? Absolutely. <laughs> um I just I do really remember writing this article and thinking, oh my gosh, well, this council is doing things that affect me. You know, This is real day life. And um, you know, it was this topic, it was the artificial intelligence topic. I remember when we first got the information um, about AI, and I was like, I don't even know what this stands for, and we you know, read the information about it, and I thought oh my gosh, this is really cool. And I felt like I was on the cutting edge of dentistry and I was seeing what was happening before it was actually happening. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I got involved in organized dentistry is because I wanted to, you know, keep moving this profession forward. And I felt like I was actually doing something that was helping my, you know, colleagues. And, um, but... I'm trying to think of, there's also fun memories about seeing how far we could stretch the cheese on a deep dish pizza in Chicago. <laughs> and so we were having a contest and we, I think I ended up standing up on a chair and I could get the cheese to stretch that far. So that was also one a fun memory. <laughs>
4: And I have so many fond memories as well, Uh, again, around the people. I think the work that we do is so critically important that um, when we do our Zoom meetings, we're we're still able to accomplish so many things and, and still have fun. But I truthfully have to say that my favorite moment, if I may, is right now, because we started this year thinking about how we can reinvigorate our ethical moment articles. And that has been an ongoing project for many, many years. We have a vast database. And how we could bring that back into the forefront and use that information to, to share it on a new platform with all dentists and all, all um, not only members, but all dentists, especially new dentists, and then use that information to keep ethics at the forefront and also share it with the districts for continuing education. So it really was a movement to start this podcast and to see it come through all of the hard work of all of our council members from a vision to a reality has, has really been fantastic. So thank you, Alex and Ainsley for all the hard work that you've done this year on the
1: podcast. You took my answer. (laughs) I was going to say the same thing, but you know, I have really, I am going to say one thing and I have said this many times, but I have been so encouraged by our new Dennis members on this committee and Alex has been outstanding. And I knew from the beginning when we started talking about this podcast, and he was really excited because he would show up for every one of my subcommittee meetings, every one. And I'm like, oh, he's into this. And um, I it, it gives me just a great feeling to know that there are some wonderful new dentists coming up through the ranks. And it, it really has given me a uh, just a great feeling for what a profession is is leading towards. So I would echo what you said. Um, this has been one of the highlights of the year.
0: I'm going to switch gears a little bit and ask another question or two, if that's all right with everybody. Um,
4: I want to hear your highlight. Okay. Oh, yeah.
0: I just, I just get to ask the questions. I don't have to answer That's, <laughs> that's, that's what I thought the, that's how I thought this worked. Um, it, it, echoing what's been said, it's the people. I remember, um, Similar to Lindsay's story, Eric, have some opportunities as new dentist committee members and as to what councils or committees we'd like to serve on. And I remember asking her and she said, the people are just amazing. And that has been through and through every, every point. This podcast experience has been, uh, I, I enjoyed it from the get go. I, I had a pretty good idea what I was getting into and it's just been wonderful. So um, just the people all in all and just, it's, it's such a kind and welcoming committee, um, unlike any I've, I've been on. So this has been a great experience. So ethics and leadership um, tie hand in hand in so many ways, in in my opinion. So this is kind of a a different off-the-cuff question that um, Lindsay and Meredith, I know you didn't have a chance to prepare, but both of you are relatively very young state society presidents or in the ranks. So could you tell me a little bit about that experience and what uh, kind of drew, what the inspiration was to serve in that capacity?
4: So I started my involvement in organized dentistry like a lot of new dentists as my class ASDA when I was in dental school at Case Western Reserve University, uh, where Alex is from Ohio. So I'll give a, a plug there. And, and then after that, just always wanted to be involved. And so I had the fortune of starting a brand new district in Massachusetts from scratch. So we created the Boston District Dental Society, which is now the 14th district in Massachusetts. And that was just fascinating for me from an organizational perspective and just a business perspective of how you Um, are given a few members and you're able to grow that. And we're very fortunate in Boston, we have three dental schools in the area. So we have a lot of new dentists and we have a lot of energy and enthusiasm. And I had fantastic mentors that helped that process. We actually, our third year, became the largest district in the state. Um, And now it's been the district for seven years. So I started as the secretary and worked my way up and it was natural uh, with my commitment to the profession and to organized dentistry to continue at the state level. And I won the election for vice president, which then I ascended to president. And I'm actually the youngest president in Massachusetts and the first two-year term president with our governance reform. So I look forward to, to the continued success of organized dentistry and all that we're doing to, to shape the future of our profession.
3: Uh, So, yes, this year I'm serving as the president of the Colorado Dental Association, um, and probably just like Meredith, um, in dental school at Iowa, plug to Iowa, Uh, I was involved in ASDA, but then also the American Association of Dental Research, AADR, Um, and in both organizations I found a lot of great leaders that really always inspired me. Um, So, then I also went on to go into a GPR, and I've moved several times, but each time I've landed... I've always looked around at my colleagues and gone to the state dental associations because I always like that like-minded birds of a feather uh, kind of situation. and. Every time I've landed at a situation, I've always found really great people, and then just continued to surround myself um, because those people continue to inspire me and push me. And it's not just at dental meetings. Meredith and I, you know, like chat all throughout the year, um, but you build some really great friendships, um, and it's also fun to connect across, you know, the country with people, and um, you know, continue to be involved at the local level in Colorado. Same thing. You know, once I started attending meetings, I started just going to new dentist committee events because I wanted to learn about what is embezzlement? How do you design a dental office? And so when I went to all those new dentist events, then I was meeting all these people that I genuinely enjoyed. And I also found out how much I care about the profession and how much I care about the future of it. Um, And then I always tell people that one of the things that continues to motivate me is that personal statement that you write or you write right when you enter dental school. And in that, I always look back and think, gosh, am I the dentist that I would look up to when I wrote this personal statement? You know, am I being the person that a new dentist or a person going into dental school would want to look up towards? And that's how I always think of myself and involvement in organized dentistry.
0: Thank you. Thank you both for sharing that. Thank you. Um, And then just wrapping up, um, do we have any questions from the audience or any questions about either of the articles we've discussed?
4: Um, I was gonna say it's really fun. We actually have an audience here. Wow. Thank you all for coming. Thank you.
0: It's been a wonderful time and a great time doing this live and on stage and being at SmileCon. So thank you everyone.
4: Oh thanks for having us. Thank you.
0: final note about the episode. Please see the show notes for a link to the original article and stay tuned for future episodes. At the close of the episode, continue listening to hear the sections of the ADA's Principles of Ethics and Code of Professional Conduct pertinent to the original Ethical Moment article. Thank you for keeping ethics at the forefront of the dental profession and join Sibja as we continue to solve dental dilemmas. These articles discuss four sections of the ADA's Principles of Ethics and Code of Professional Conduct. These sections are as follows. Section 4, Justice. The dentist has a duty to treat people fairly. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to be fair in their dealings with patients, colleagues, and society. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include dealing with people justly and delivering dental care without prejudice. In its broadest sense, this principle expresses the concept that the dental profession should actively seek allies throughout society on specific activities that will help improve access to care for all. Section 4A, Patient Selection. While dentists, in serving the public, may exercise reasonable discretion in selecting patients for their practices, dentists shall not refuse to accept patients into their practice or deny dental service to patients because of the patient's race, creed, color, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, national origin, or disability. Advisory Opinion 4A1, Patients with Disabilities or Bloodborne Pathogens. As is the case with all patients, when considering the treatment of patients patients with a physical, intellectual, or developmental disability or disabilities, including patients infected with HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, or another bloodborne pathogen, or are otherwise medically compromised, the individual dentist should determine if he or she has the need of another skills, knowledge, equipment, or expertise, and if so, consultation or referral pursuant to Section 2B hereof is indicated. Decisions regarding the type of dental treatment provided or referrals made or suggested should be made on the same basis as they were made with other patients. The dentist should also determine after consul- consultation with the patient's physician, if appropriate, if the patient's health status would be significantly compromised by the pro- provision of dental treatment. Section three, beneficence. The dentist has a duty to promote the patient's welfare. This principle expresses a concept that professionals have a duty to act for the benefit of others. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligation is service to the patient and the public at large. The most important aspect of this obligation is the competent and timely delivery of dental care within the bounds of clinical circumstances presented by the patient, with due consideration being given to the needs, desires, and values of the patient. The same ethical considerations apply whether the dentist engages in fee-for-service, managed care, or some other practice arrangement. Dentists may choose to enter into contracts governing the provision of care to a group of patients. However. Contract obligations do not excuse dentists from their ethical duty to put the patient's welfare first. Section one, patient autonomy. The dentist has a duty to respect the patient's right to self-determination and confidentiality. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to treat the patient according to the patient's desires, within the bounds of accepted treatment, and to protect the patient's confidentiality. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include involving patients in treatment decisions in a meaningful way, with due consideration being given to the patient's needs, desires, and abilities, and safeguarding the patient's privacy. Section 2. Non-maleficence. Dentist has a duty to refrain from harming the patient. This principle expresses a concept that professionals have a duty to protect the patient from harm. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include keeping knowledge and skills current, knowing one's own limitations, and when to refer to a specialist or other professional and knowing when and under what circumstances delegation of patient care to auxiliaries is appropriate. Remember to keep ethics at the forefront of your daily practice, and stay tuned to Sibja Decode's Dental Dilemmas.